0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Obscurity Knox. But not just another episode. This is a special episode. But not a very special episode. I mean there's no shocking moment where you find out I've been smoking pot or secretly concealing my literacy, and no one's gonna suddenly learn that they're actually adopted. Or are they? No, they're not. Uh, What's special is that this episode doesn't follow the format of the preceding episodes, and there's a very simple reason for that, and not just the it's my podcast and I'll do what I want card. I love the format I came up with for Obscurity Knox, and I don't want to do away with that, but what I do want is to be able to take advantage of interview opportunities that come my way, and when the opportunity arose to chat with Ike Eisenman, well, sir, I don't have to tell you. I, Well, actually, I do have to tell you, or I should. Uh, I'll do that. Ike Isomans, an actor whose name may not immediately ring a bell, but if you grew up in the 70s, you totally know the guy. That's because he grew up in the 70s, too. He was a child actor, making the rounds on an episode of this show, an episode of that show, turning up on Little House on the Prairie, Chips, Kung Fu, Wonder Woman, The Jeffersons, did a couple of after-school specials. But where he made the greatest impression on me was with the sci-fi stuff he did back in the day. He and Kim Richards co-starred in the Disney classics Escape from Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain. He was in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, where he played Scotty's nephew, Peter Preston. May he rest in peace. But what brought him into my orbit, sci-fi pun not intended, but we're going to roll with it, was a short-lived series he did in 1977 called The Fantastic Journey. Lost in the devil's triangle, trapped in a dimension with beings from the future and from other worlds, a party of adventurers journeys through zones of time back to their own time. A man from the 23rd century, possessing awesome powers. From 1977, Fred, a young doctor just out of medical school. Scott Jordan, the 13-year-old son of a famous scientist. Liana, daughter of an Atlantean father and an extraterrestrial mother. And Jonathan Willaway scientists from the 1960s. Together, they face the frightening unknown on a fantastic journey. It starred Eisenman, Jared Martin, Carl Franklin, Katie Saylor, and Roddy McDowell. Totally geeky, I know, and I devoured every last minute of it. I was a precocious six-year-old. We're gonna tell you, I couldn't get enough TV. And when I got an email from Get TV about how they were going to be airing a marathon of these ten episodes, I was ecstatic. And when I discovered that Ike Eisenman was going to be doing some interviews to promote the marathon, I made a snap decision. The Fantastic Journey was damn sure obscure enough to warrant having Ike as a guest on this podcast. Thankfully, the folks at TV were up for it, as was Ike. And the end result was a great conversation, which, although I wasn't able to hit on everything I would have liked to have asked him about, still resulted in some wonderful stories from throughout his career. The Fantastic Journey marathon kicked off last week on March 12th with the first five episodes of the series, and continues on March 19th, with the final five episodes, starting at midnight on Monday. And just to clarify by that, I mean at one minute after 11.59 p.m. on Sunday night, it's Fantastic Journey time, baby. Got it? Good. Enjoy the interview. Hey, Ike, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. I, I good. I have to say, uh, I wonder if it was as shocking for you as it was for me to suddenly find that Fantastic Journey was going to be airing on TV again. <laughs> Oh, it was shocking, totally shocking to me, yeah. I actually remember watching it when it was originally on the air, and, and I've had a soft spot for it ever since, so I was ecstatic when I got the email finding out about it.
1: Oh, cool. So I'm talking to an old-school um, sci-fi fan. This oh, absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, you would have been the, the, the prime age to really uh, enjoy doing that, I, w- I would think, uh, when you got that gig. Oh,
1: Oh, yeah. It was like, my gosh, I was 13, 14 years old. I was a massive consumer of sci-fi myself, both in print and, you know, film and TV. And so when when the show came up, I was extremely uh, excited. And, you know, having a chance to audition for it made it that much better, getting it, of course, the icing on the cake. So there you go.
0: (laughs) So when, I don't know if you recall this specifically, but uh, when they uh, first pitched the show was scott jordan particularly well-defined as a character or did they give you some leeway as far as uh figuring out who he was
1: yeah uh, it's it, it, not just he was he he was just defined as as a as a you know very curious and assertive uh, uh young young character it wasn't anything particularly specific or or broad they just allowed me to walk into it and and be myself and and uh have it unfold after that so yeah it was it,
0: it, yeah, it was pretty much a straight a straightforward young guy well the series kind of evolved well pretty quickly uh out of the festi given it was only 10 episodes but uh do you remember mm-hmm. the the transition that occurred after that uh the pilot where they uh shifted up who was going to be regulars
1: yes I, I i did it was a it, it
0: was
1: not an, atyp- an untypical or atypical situation in television or Hollywood where creative decisions are made, things, ideas are changed, and they did the pilot. The, uh, yes, the, the the overall concept for Fantastic Journey, obviously, is about this group of people who go into the Bermuda Triangle and end up in this fantasy world. The fantasy world was supposed to go into the future. It was going to go into the past. It was going to go all over the place. And i I I seem to recall that Production got so complicated And bogged down and expensive In the part of the pilot That was dealing with The past and the historic aspect of the show And uh, the network And the producers Just decided that once they shot everything And put it all together That they wanted to move in a strictly science fiction Future alien kind of um, World From that point forward So before really, we'd shot all the material for the pilot. We heard that it was going to get picked up for the series, and then they came in and said, "Well, we're coming. We're going back, and we're going to restructure the pilot. Here's what we're going to do here, here's what we're going to do there." And all of a sudden, half the cast was gone, and I was still there, which I was grateful for. But it was just kind of a strange thing. But once I saw the kernel of the of the cast that they chose to put it together going forward. It, it made sense. I, I think our original cast was a little bit too, uh, there were too many of us and it was uh, kind of too much of the same personality type. So it ended up making sense, but it was an awkward little bit of a transition plugging in suddenly the um, these science fiction elements, but, uh, it was still fun. And once it, once it, once it rolled over, it was fine with me because I, as I've said, the sci- the sci-fi part is,
0: uh, right up my alley. <laughs> was there any particular, uh, uh, to the special effects that uh, was entertaining for you? because Obviously, it was not the, the biggest budget in the world. No, no,
1: no, no it wasn't. It's all, all of it is entertaining to me. <laughs> I, one of the big reasons I wanted to be an actor was I wanted to be a part of how special effects were done. They fascinated me as a child. And so getting a chance to do Escape to Witch Mountain, well, I don't even have enough time to go into how much fun that was, being a part <laughs> of those effects. So having the series and having all these kind of weird and quirky things that you've got to figure out how to do. And yeah, I was a kid. I was build- building model airplanes. I was very uh, you know, artistic and creative and crafty. I liked creating things at home. So getting to do that on the set, um, being an active part of how these effects were done, was just a blast. And yeah, has all kinds of strange things, like uh, um, uh, Jared Martin t- to use his... Um, tuning for appealing magical tricorder things and of course that's what it was uh, every time he he it had to glow there was you know a half inch cable of wires that had to go up his sleeve and down his pants and and he couldn't walk very far he had to stand there so there were the restrictions and and then of course he had to play it up as if we're hearing all the sounds around us and and all of that and you know we're not on the set you're just standing there with a a plastic, a piece of plastic that glows pink, and wires going down your pants. It's very funny, you know. You kind of get over the awkwardness of the, of the very analog nature of, of yes, the inexpensive effects to, to, to make it, to, to sell it as an actor, and that's your, that becomes your job as, as much as uh, saying <laughs> your lines. So it's very fun. I, I, I love, I love doing it, and. Um, you know, you know, the better you are at helping the prop people and the effects people do their job, the, the, you know, the smoother
0: things go, of course, as well. But yeah, it's great stuff. I'm glad you sensed where I was going with that because I was thinking in terms of the Star Trek uh, salt and pepper shakers. So uh, you, you, were, <laughs> <laughs> you were right, right in line yeah. with my thought. And
1: honestly, I, it's, this is, I, can, I can now feel as I'm talking more and more about him, and we'll be talking about more about him in the future, it, it's just going to get old. He was simply the nicest man I ever met in the business, period, and we had um, pretty much an instant camaraderie um, because he started in the business at the same age pretty much that, that I did. So. Uh, we, have, we have that in, in common, and um, we never really talked about it. He would mention things every once in a while, um, and he always made sure to check in with me because children don't, uh, God, this is a horrible comparison. It's going to sound terrible, but children <laughs> are like dogs. We don't show pain.
0: Yeah. We don't
1: show fatigue if we can help it because we're having fun in our professional environment. That's why we're there. So he always kind of made sure to make sure I was okay. I wasn't too tired. If he saw me losing my focus or anything like that, he would just talk to me or whatever to redirect my attention. Um, but he was also just a really good friend. He was fun. He was hilarious. Um, one, of the, one of my favorite things uh, I enjoyed doing with him was every Monday morning sitting next to him as we were getting ready to work, uh, he had a TV guide in his hand, and he would go through the TV guide cover to cover, uh that morning and underline every single old movie that he wanted to record and i say i don't say that lightly (laughs) again the betamax days you got to remember
0: 30
1: minute tapes 60 minute tapes not everybody could afford to own one of these machines they cost 1500 dollars in 1977 so uh, they were pricey they may be may have been more than that. Anyway, he underlined everything, and he had his assistant program the, the VCR, and he was constantly doing this all throughout the week, and that was his biggest hobby, watching old movies. And um, I also believe at the time he had uh, the distinction of, of having the largest private collection of old um, studio movies um, in the country. I, I, whether they were thirty-five millimeter prints or sixteen millimeter prints, he collected. Uh, he was a avid, huge collector of, of that material. So, yeah, you know, we talk about movies all the time. I love movies. I watch old movies. We just it, it was it was just like having this instant um, and easy best friend on the set. Uh, <laughs> but when we worked, we worked. We were serious and. Uh, he respected that about me too, because I was a very—I you know, took my job seriously, not so too seriously, but I was there to work, and that right. was very important to me. And he—he he could see that as well. So he was—he was—he he, a lovely man. Uh, I can't say any more than that. Everything you've read about is true. That's great.
0: <laughs> well, I just like to ask the actors uh, about how they found their way into the business in the first place. Obviously, you were young when you did, but uh, was it something that you? Mm-hmm personally wanted to do or was something your family thought that you might have an affinity for? Or? Um,
1: both were true. Okay. My family thought I would have an affinity for it, I believe, otherwise I, I, I know historically um, the offer wouldn't have ba- been made to me to enter the business, but I never really expressed the desire to do it, yet I always had. My father... Um, his name's Al Eisenman. He was actually a uh, very well-known local TV personality in Houston, Texas in the late 50s and early 60s. Uh, he co- he hosted, uh, starred on a children's television show called The Kid Don Show, That's and it ran for uh, nine years and hugely popular. He did a lot of other things locally in the Houston, Texas uh, area and, and around the state as an entertainer and wanted to... Um, expand his opportunities. So uh, he quit the show, we packed up the family, and we moved to Hollywood. And I pretty much just kind of have been around the business uh, all of my life. I was on his show live when I was two years old uh, for my birthday. I was on there for my third birthday, fourth, fifth, and sixth. Uh, My dad had a film camera. I was constantly, my brother and I, my mother, we were in films that showed on the, on, on the show, just home movie. It was just this constant thing that was I was around and a part of. So really when the idea for me to just enter the business as a commercial actor, that was really how it started. Um, you know, my dad asked me, do you, would you like to do commercials? And I said, sure. Little did he know that I'd been pining away for this opportunity for years. But I just had never said anything about it. So somehow these all these things converged, and I met with his uh, his agent, and they signed me. I started auditioning, and boom, one thing just kind of spilled out
0: after after the other. Wow. Yeah. Well, I can't pin I can pin down when which aired first. But I can't pin down which actually you did first. Was it Mannix or Gunsmoke that was your first TV episode? Gunsmoke.
1: I did a gun smoke episode. And then I did man. I and it, I, I, manics and emergency, are the two that I get confused about. So I even have to take a look myself because, yeah, the, uh, they they blended a little bit in in, in my uh, very young head uh, because often you know the, the the when you shoot something and when it's released. Uh, there can be a, a difference between those things. So my memory is always about when I shot it, less about when it aired. But um, yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was. I did a gun, episode of Gunsmoke called Eleven Dollars. That was my first TV show I did. Then I did Manic. I think I did. Then I did Emergency. Then Manic. Then Kung Fu, and then another episode of uh, Gunsmoke, which is was quite exciting because it was my, the first job I got where the producer simply called my agent and asked me to do the show. I didn't have to audition for it. So that was tremendously exciting to me because I, as much as I loved to work, I hated auditioning. <laughs> 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 I always did. I could not stand it. But yeah, if I wanted the job, I had to do it. So it was a necessary evil that I put up with. But, uh, yeah, that's kind of how that uh, how that started but I did a bunch of commercials before I actually uh, even got that first audition for Gunsmoke. So, had a lot of gradual training training on the job but it was, gosh, it was just fun. I just loved doing it.
0: Well, clearly Disney enjoyed your work because uh, I like know Sky's the Limit, was that, that was before Escape to yes. Witch right? That was right, I did it right after Escape
1: which Witch Okay. It was the first title I did um, under my contract with Disney. They, signed me to a three-year contract about uh, within the first week of shooting on Escaped Witch Mountain and again another kind of big coup for me because um, it meant three years of Disney projects that I didn't have to audition for and I was really thrilled. The first one that came up was uh, Sky's the Limit. It was done the summer after we shot Escape Witch Mountain and was, was had aired before Witch Mountain was released the following year. So, yeah, that was a real. That was another man. You talk about an outstanding adventure show to, to work on. I got to do more fun things.
0: <laughs>
1: I was always a kid getting into trouble. You know, knocking stuff down, and uh, it, there was always a big production around the around the the antics of my characters.
0: You know, it was great fun. Do you remember anything in particular about Pat O'Brien? Yes.
1: Yes. I. Uh, I. Had uh, I'd seen Pat O'Brien in many movies before I got uh, before I got to work with him. and of course I'd seen, um, oh gosh, I'm sorry, Newt Rockney, the Gipper. Which one is it called, Newt Rockney? Yeah, I forget the title oh, of the film. Uh, yeah, this historic, major, important film. Yeah, Newt Rockney, Rock, All American. Yeah, yeah, All American with Ronald Reagan, and right. uh, and Pat, you know, uh, Pat O'Brien has this the famous. Uh, monologue, the speech that Newt Rockne gives about, you know, the one for the Gipper. Right. It was already a classic, cliche monologue in Hollywood by the time I I worked with him (laughs) and one day after lunch, we were were, we'd finished lunch, we were sitting we were just, I don't know, just chatting because that's just what you do, right? And we were sitting around chatting, it was weeks into the production, so it wasn't anything, I don't know it just came out of the blue for some reason, he got nostalgic, and he just went into the monologue. And I get a little choked up even now telling the story because because at first, no one I wasn't sure what he was doing. I thought he was just telling another story. Uh. But he went into it with such ease that it was like, my God, and then suddenly I realized what it was. And he did the whole monologue for me. And by the time he was done, I looked around, and there were about ten crew members standing around listening to him do it and you know these guys that you know they're they're pulling cable they're moving lights it's hot out who who would have thought it would stop everyone in their tracks and it was just a very moving thing and i just i i i I didn't even know what to say i just thanked him and and he just said yeah he says it still holds a very special place in my heart and i've never forgotten a word of it since and i just went wow that's how neat. How neat. How neat to have something that special in your career with a career like his. Oh yeah. That is still that meaningful. And uh and little did I know at the time I had already I'd made a film that was going to kind of hold that place in my career. So, you know, <laughs> these these little moments of special and um special irony are not lost on me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I will say I do have both Escape to Witch Mountain and Return from Witch Mountain on D V D. So uh uh, okay. Another old That's school, nice school fan situation here.
1: Yeah,
0: well,
1: well, I'm on VHS, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a more old school. <laughs>
0: yeah. I mean, looking back at those, it's just amazing that the people you got to work with just on those two films alone—Eddie Albert, Ray Boland, yes. Donald Pleasence, Penny Davis—and man, it's, uh, it's crazy. And I'm sure if oh, you're familiar with it, the, the classic movies back then, you were already well familiar with all of them.
1: Yes, I I, I was I, I I was a huge consumer of of movie entertainment as a child, both film and television. It it uh, I kind of I think um, generationally, if you're looking at the early '60s or the '60s in general, there was still some question as to whether or not there was a television in someone's house, and not every household had a TV, let alone a color TV. So because my father was in the business, we always had a television, so I was very much exposed to um, to everything television had to offer from a young age in the 60s. And old movies, I absolutely loved them, and they were running all the time. And so, yes, I saw Ray milan uh, constantly. I, I just saw all these people, so I kind of, and as I just sort of slid into the business, it simply meant I was was going to have these opportunities to work with people that I had been watching. And I didn't look at them, I think, the you know way a lot of people do or can do from kind of a fan base. It, it wasn't, it, it was, I, I, I identified because I understood what it meant to be on the other side of the camera and I always have my whole life. So I kind of looked at them as these creative people that did these amazing things. And that was my perspective. So when I got to meet them, it was like, oh, good. We, now we get to work together. We all get to play together. How cool is this? It was and a little bit of that attitude for me. So, yes, I knew who Ray Moland was. I had no idea how tall he was. But he is the, he, the three tallest people I have ever met in the business. First was James Arnett, which is who oh, he's yeah. historically and classically. The You know, the stories about what you know how tall he is are famous. But Ray Malan. Just kept going. He I, he was sitting down when I met him. He stood up to to be introduced to me, and I thought, "Wow, my neck stopped," but he kept going. The third is Dwayne Johnson, another oh, sure. incredibly large, tall human being. Just those those are, those are my three up there. But um, <laughs> but yeah, so I was very aware of the uh, uh, the the stars that, that I got to work with. I knew there were. Um, and and and. Always, it was what what I enjoyed about it was I always felt like part of their team. They were part of my team quite often. I mean, really, Ray Milan was a co-star of, of Escape to Witch Mountain to Kim and I, if you're really looking at it that way. Yeah. And not that I knew that walking in, but I did know how many times he was on set versus how many times Kim and I were on set. So um, he, he definitely was came in with all that movie star bravura, but um, worked with us just like another member of the team. So, that, again, that goes back to what I kind of referred to earlier, just the, the, the class act and how just extraordinary they were yeah. and how much that really taught me because, you know, the business was changing. Younger people were coming in, the attitudes were changing, and I, I, I very much um, enjoyed and, you you know, think fondly about um, th- those movie stars and, and 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 how they carry themselves.
0: I, we're going have to wrap up soon, but I have to ask about uh, Star Trek, too, because... Uh, sure. I actually uh, had the, the, the novel, because that's the level of geek I am, and so I'd known all about the mm-hmm. Peter Preston connection uh, from reading that, and so oh, I always felt like uh, you didn't get nearly enough of uh, storyline in the actual film. <laughs> <laughs> Scotty's nephew. That, 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 that's that's the key, and I figure you'd think they would have made more of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I agree.
0: <laughs> but still, I, I, that had to have been just cool to be on a, a big budget, but big budget, high profile project like that one. Oh, most definitely,
1: most definitely. I uh, they definitely spent the money, and they spent it in the right places because the the bridge set alone was. Truly extraordinary, and uh, I pay. I always pay particular notice to these things because it was always they were always high on my radar, um, coming just from the production, you know, experience I had. Period. Um, but looking at the wires coming off of this thing, and it, 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 it yeah, it, it, it. I, I, it, it was just a huge. It looked like a spaceship. I mean, it really did. It looked like a spaceship on the soundstage with wires coming out everywhere, and they could take it apart and move parts of it. It was just a rather extraordinary piece of engineering in and of itself as a set, uh, as a simple set.
0: Yeah. And
1: so that you know, that was that was just a, a, a fun thing to watch and and see how they they put those uh, things together at the time. But um, but yeah, I, I, the. I have um, almost zero experience with what most actors now deal with in the special effects arena, where they're just in front of a green screen all the time and they're uh, barely touch anything or actually see anything that's happening. I actually got to interact with all of my props and effects and anything that that uh, that that you know, we were working with in those days. Uh, I can say that now. Gosh, how embarrassing! But in back in those days. Uh, Everything was right in front of you it was all analog, and and, uh, and so I really um, even respect the actors more because you, their job is that much harder. It's, we always had to imagine that it was real, but they really do now
0: have to imagine it's real because it's not even there. <laughs> <laughs> there's a, a, there's a storyline that's in the Star Trek two novel that i you're the only person I guess who could really answer this that I've talked to, uh, where Peter Preston and Savick, there's like a relationship with them in the novel. Was that ever actually in the script? No, no, that's
1: what I was wondering about. No, that never was. I, I really, I don't. I, I'm, I'm going to plead uh, gross ignorance here because I don't know the chronology of where, where the uh, novelization of the story <laughs> comes into play. The people have brought up that, yeah, that there were hints of this relationship that, um, that no, was never even a discussion. It wasn't on a page anywhere. It was not in any early edition. No, and, no hint of it of any kind. I don't think there was room in that movie for another. Yeah, heck, they couldn't They couldn't maintain uh, my relationship with uh, Scotty. How could they have established one with me and uh, Savick? <laughs> A fair question.
0: <laughs> uh, well, yeah, there you go. Let's uh, wrap up by uh, talking just briefly about your current uh, aspect of the business, which uh, is working in, I guess, uh, sound predominantly. Is that, or no, You have anyway. I don't um, still are. Know. Is that true?
1: No, uh, I'm not anymore. I'm retired okay. now from the business. But, yeah, a large block of uh, the um, the latter part of my career w- was spent in uh, a ADR. little known aspect of, yeah, ADR. Yeah. It's a post-production sound. It's custom sound effects for movies and TV shows. They're all vocal. We're all a uh, group of actors that provide the service. And um, I worked, uh, yeah, I first got into it working for Barbara Harris, who's really the um she is, is probably the, the the busiest, most powerful um, ADR uh, group out there. Um, and uh, I ended up working with, uh, splitting off from her and working with some, some partners in a group called the LA Mad Dog. And uh, we did film and television work for a good solid 15 years. And I worked on hundreds and hundreds of movies. It was really an, an awesome um, aspect of the business to work in. It was great fun. Um, I kind of call it, I, I call it custom vocal sound effects because that's really what we did. So uh, I did that for a, a very long time and then decided it was time for me to just kind of move on and egress uh, out of the business and and, uh, and see what was going to be coming up next for me. So, yeah, I did that for a long time
0: and uh, did some really fun work. I will say thanks to your credit in Two Moon Junction, I now know what a wallet group is.
1: Yes, a wallet group, ADR group, loop group, looping group. There's so many terms; they're all interchangeable. And actually, I will be explaining it in probably more detail than anyone wants to know in the memoir I'm writing right now, my time in the business. So oh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be able to define it for uh, for everyone in some way, and it'll be a little bit more about the business than than they thought they wanted to know. <laughs>
0: Excellent. I'll look forward to reading that. Well, thanks uh, so much for taking time to chat. I, like I say, I. I literally can say that I've been a fan uh, just about all my life so uh, I've I oh, love a fantastic well, journey it's nice thanks. to actually to get a chance to chat with you
1: yep. absolutely it was my pleasure and thank you so much and I uh, yeah, look forward to when this is uh, posted
0: you've been listening to Obscurity Knox and now you're not look for us on Facebook follow us on Twitter just remember on Twitter, Knox is spelled K-N-O-X, and we're not better about that. No, really, we're not. Also, for a slightly more detailed look into the projects covered by this week's guest, head over to newsreviewsinterviews.com. Thanks for checking us out, and don't be afraid to check us out again. If you keep listening, we'll keep digging for more obscurities. See you next time.